0: Lots of people have noticed that Babing is Christocentric, but they've never made any attempt to actually explain what that means or in what sense. Bobcast. 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 Bobcast.
1: This is the Bobcast. A podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Bovcast. Bovcast. All right, there we go. Awful. (laughs) That was how we lost our few remaining (laughs)
2: listeners. Be a Patriarch.
1: We don't, we don't do that here (laughs) for now.
2: (laughs) Give Um. us money. Okay. (laughs) To buy books.
1: So this is season two of the Bobcast because podcasts divide into seasons when they want to take an extended break for lack of good reason. We lack
2: good reasons to have taken a break.
1: I guess it was, you know, holidays and it was my birthday. That's not a good reason birthdays aren't good reasons for most things people do on birthdays but they do them so what did you do for your birthday andrew uh, i went to church because it was on a sunday ooh it's the lord's day before it's my day
2: that's funny i think uh actually yeah my
1: birthday fell on
2: a fell on a lord's day also this year
1: fascinating Yeah. So this is Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. I am a pastoral intern at the Oceanside United Reformed Church and a student at Westminster Seminary, California.
2: And I am Caleb Castro. Uh, I am the uh, pastoral intern at Oak Glen United Reformed Church in Lansing, Illinois, and I am a student at Mid-America Reformed Seminary.
1: Look at that pan reformed seminary unity
2: we are so ecumenical or something
1: i don't think that's the thing
2: that's not the thing we are something we are pan something
1: pan we're pandemic pantheistic no we're not that can't do that (laughs) we are farmers bum 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 yay verily (laughs)
2: So what is this podcast about, Andrew?
1: This podcast is a podcast exploring Reformed Theology through the works of Herman Bovink.
2: Oh, that's just like the voice at the beginning of the episode said. Shh,
1: you weren't supposed (laughs) to tell. So we're pleased to be joined today by Dr. Bruce Pass. He is the Director of Postgraduate Studies and a lecturer in Christian Thought and History at the Brisbane School of Theology in Australia. Good to have you on, Dr. Pass.
0: It's delightful to be with you.
1: So Dr. Pass has done a lot of work in the field of bovink studies. He has recently published a book called The Heart of Dogmatics that we will be getting into here shortly, talking about Inc's theological method and what is the focal point of his dogmatics. And so we're looking forward to that discussion. Dr. Pass, if you wouldn't mind for our listeners, just telling a little about yourself and what's got you interested in Inc. and what sort of work you've been doing.
0: Yeah, certainly. Australia is a long way from the Netherlands or Grand Rapids. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so that's always a point of uh, intrigue for people that are interested in Bavink. But I first came across BAVINK as the Reformed Dogmatics was translated into English in 2009. So just as all four volumes were available, then one of my lecturers at Moore Theological College, where I did my undergraduate theology degree in training to be a pastor, uh, held up the third volume, uh, one week in our lectures on the personal work of Christ and commented on uh, appreciation for the very clear lines of thought and suggested that we might like to have a read. And I, I was uh, at the time sort of aware that um, I needed to do quite a bit extra reading and historical theology. So Moore College at that time it was more than 10 years ago. It was a terrific institution for biblical languages and biblical theology. And uh, to my way of thinking, I, I noticed that I needed to be reading more historical theology. And um, I also was wanting to understand Karl Barth and had an inkling. My fear is that at that time I I had this sense that people read Barth without really understanding what he was reacting against, uh, whether that be liberal Protestantism or whether that be uh, Reformed Orthodoxy. And that in order to read Barth well, one needs to really have a clear understanding of the heritage against which he was engaging and I looked at these Bavink books and thought, well, there's only four volumes there and there's 14 volumes in the church dogmatics, so uh, it's probably a good policy. And so I read this volume on the personal work of Christ and I was uh, immediately struck by the fact that it was truly a church dogmatic. So the amount of historical theology and exegesis in Bavink was truly, um, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, well, this is the uh, series of books that If I read this, uh, it'll certainly supply what I'm looking for in terms of my general theological education, but also this very close engagement with modern philosophy and modern theologians, which remember that is writing in the 1890s, so for him, contemporary theology is these people writing in the 1870s and 80s. That really struck a chord with me too. So I'm still in that preliminary phase of seeking to understand Karl Barth better, (laughs) 10 years later. Um, (laughs) Might be
2: another 10 years too, right?
0: (laughs) That's right. Uh, But that really kept me interested. I read the remaining volumes, and I think it's just the depth of Barfink's engagement with theological problems that actually just kept me with him rather than using him as a springboard to other thinkers. And so uh, that's really the answer to that question, is there is a depth to Barfink which uh, actually just keeps you with him. Uh, There are some theologians, you read some, and you move on to other people. I think at this stage, having read Baving very closely for 10 years, I'm I'm actually quite keen to find other people to read, Uh, but certainly at that point, uh, there was just so much there uh, that it really kept my attention.
2: You had initially gone to school to uh, be a minister, I believe you had just mentioned, and this is in the Anglican Church?
0: Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I pastored a church in Sydney for four years after the four years that I studied at Moore College. And then following that, that pastoral work, I did my doctorate at the University of Edinburgh.
2: Right. Under James Egwinton. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And that time uh, I had seen in your uh, acknowledgments uh, in your book, you giving a shout out to the Egwintonians. That wonderful group of uh, Bafink scholars coming out of there.
0: Yeah, no, that was terrific. Uh, so it was uh, Edinburgh was the ideal place. What you're looking for is a, a very good institution with a specialist in your field as a supervisor in Edinburgh. Opening up British universities to Bafink studies was the only choice, really. And what made it such a good place was it wasn't just one student doing Bafink with an expert in a good institution, but uh, there was this cluster of uh, bathing PhDs. Um, so by the time I'd finished, there were five or six of us. And uh, that, that gives a real energy to discussion and certainly keeps you aware of the latest research. So that was that's terrific.
1: Now, you've also done some translation work, uh, bringing about some of Bavink's works into English. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What works you've translated and what you've discovered as you've done that?
0: Yes, certainly. So just a few months ago, a book came out with Brill, which is my translation of four of Barfink's academic orations uh, under the title On Theology. So the origin of that project was during my doctoral studies Um, It's essential to be working from original languages, and part of developing your your facility in original languages is translation. So I translated two of these things and realized I had half a book, and um, Brill was very interested in publishing the other half. That was actually a a really, I think, a really important project because uh, Jan Feenhoff, back in the 60s, comments in his uh, doctoral dissertation that... Next to Reform Dogmatics, the most important works on theology are these academic orations. And I think back to when I first began reading Bavink and realized that Modernism and Orthodoxy was an absolutely crucial text to understanding Bavink's theological project and realizing that, wow, that's not translated. And then a few other works as well, uh, but particularly that one. As, um, as I kind of poked around in these things, realized that uh, there's another speech called Religion and Theology, which is possibly the most important diving text. Uh, And there's a real irony surrounding that one because he wrote it very hastily without footnotes. So he just scribbled this thing down in a time of real kind of turmoil for him personally. But when you're under the pump, you produce good things. So there's this beautiful kind of uh, exposition of his vision of scholarly theology in this speech. And so as I kind of explored uh, these academic orations, I could see that um, there's like a whole new vista to be shared with English readers in the four speeches that are in that book.
2: I want to also uh, take a look then there in your uh, dissertation. Now, I was curious what motivated you uh, into getting into your dissertation itself. I did see in your book you had cited from Dogmatics, volume three, page 274 in the English John Bolt translation, a section, a little passage there from uh, Bavinck. How did you come across this quote? Uh, I'll read it in its entirety in a moment, but
0: yeah certainly uh, yeah. yeah so my um, my dissertation is on the role of Christology in Barfink's concept of a theological system, Christology and Christocentrism in Hammond and Barfink. I came to that topic in a slightly roundabout way, which is not uncommon for doctoral students. Initially, I'd been very intrigued by um, the ubiquity of the term self-consciousness. In Barvinck's work, he's just always talking about self-consciousness, and it seems to straddle a strange kind of group of writings. So, very comes up in connection with Hegel, but it also comes up in connection with Thomas Aquinas. Mm. Um, so, this was my original interest was to further pursue this recurring theme. But a few mo- about three months after I got to Edinburgh, uh, James just said to me quietly, "I think you know it's it's too close to Corey's project on Schleiermacher. You need to do something else." <laughs> and I was quite shocked about this. I thought, well, we could have worked, we could have worked this one out a little sooner, I think. Um, I, was really, <laughs> I was actually really pleased. Um, but it was a, an incredibly uh, wonderful change of gear, and I'm very, very grateful to have kind of been prompted to make that change because as I started to think about well, what else would one write about, I realized that a lot of things converge in the theme of Christology. And the more I poked around in that, I really stumbled across something quite crucial in Babing studies that has not been explored. So the concept of Christocentrism is of course, enormously important in the progress of modern theology from Schleiermacher to Barth. It's this attempted solution to the problem of the enlightenment. Lots of people have noticed that Babing is Christocentric, but they've never made any attempt to actually explain what that means or in what sense. And then uh, similarly, there's quite a bit of discussion about what the centre of Bavink's theology is, all sorts of suggestions. And then I realised that Bavink identifies two central dogmas and neither of them feature in any of the discussions of what might be the center of Bavinck. The very concept of a central dogma is a bit of a bad smell mm. in Reformed theology. Particularly uh, Richard Mueller has very helpfully clarified the mode of theological reflection in Calvin and the post-Reformation Orthodox theologians. Bavinck quite patently adopts central dogma as not just a helpful way of thinking about the past, but as his modus operandi for his theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I soon started to see that there was an incredibly rich vein of research to be done in looking at his Christocentrism and indeed this tension of what is his central dogma and his indecision. The fact that you have this indecision is enormously interesting. Uh, And then as you poke around a little bit on people that have just written a few sentences on this, so I'm thinking here of Jan Feinhoff, as well as uh, the German theologian Otto Weber. There's some mm-hmm. kind of hidden remarks in that book that uh, he says some fascinating things about Bavink's kind of aversion almost to a, to a central dogma. Uh, I realized that there was just a very, very important line of inquiry. And the, the statement that you mentioned in the third volume is just remarkable. In just two sentences, you have this Uh, what I describe as a portmanteau. It's like a suitcase, Mm -hmm. a very, very concentrated description of his concept of a theological system Mm -hmm. in which Christology is the center but not the starting point. Mm. And uh, they're they're very technical terms in the 19th century. But effectively what he's saying is that Christology is the center but not the central dogma. Uh, So that's very exciting. But then when you combine that with a change of heart and in several publications that post date reform dogmatics he explicitly identifies christology as the central dogma of theology that becomes an even more interesting statement Mm -hmm. as to what's going on and why did he you know why did he not do anything about it Uh, so all of these things kind of yielded a project on babing's christocentrism that is effectively an exegesis of each phrase of that incredibly pregnant statement which appears in the third volume in his section on Christology uh, and the tensions that that kind of raises for how we understand Bavink as a Reformed theologian. Yeah,
2: and I want to go ahead and read that really quick and kind of unpack then or walk through some of the points on your book of The Heart of Dogmatics. Yeah, sure. This little section that uh, you're referring to in Volume 3 of uh, Dogmatics, found on page 274 in the English translation, it reads... The doctrine of Christ is not the starting point, but it is indeed the center of the whole system of dogmatics. All other dogmas either prepare for it or are inferred from it. In it, as the heart of dogmatics, pulses the whole of the religious ethical life of Christianity. It is the Mysterion Eusebius from 1 Timothy 3.16. The whole of Christology has to proceed from here. And there you also found the title of your dissertation, The Heart of Dogmatics,
0: mm. of course. Yeah, I mean, I was—I remember listening to a lecture James Eglinton gave on Bavink's Christology at New College, and that was kind of the clinching moment uh, when I realized that this phrase, the heart of dogmatics, simply has to be the focus of not just my dissertation, but also the whole question of what's going on in Bavink, um, because it's a beautifully evocative kind of... Well, it's a metaphor it's kind of even on its own terms it's just interesting but it connects to the concept of an organism mm-hmm. because the heart is an organ mm-hmm. just as you read that phrase uh, i'm kind of reminded of all the good reasons for <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. focusing <laughs> on yeah. that for three years <laughs> yeah before
2: we get into that aspect of uh organism because I'm, I'm very glad that you bring that up i'd like us to uh go on and pack that further. But I want to start maybe one step back with this distinction uh, Bob Inc. has made between dogmatical and systematic theology. Would you be able to explain some of that?
0: Yeah, it's actually um, an intriguing distinction. So the word dogmatics, you think about asterisk the Gaul when you hear that word. Those who haven't had the pleasure of reading those little comics, I believe the Belgian or maybe a French comic strip, asterisk the Gaul, and he has a little dog called dogmatics. In any case, maybe you need to scrub that from the interview uh, Cultural references that Americans won't understand. Uh, but uh, this word dogmatics is familiar to us from Karl Barth, the church dogmatics, but it can be a little bit unfamiliar. And maybe we think of somebody being dogmatic or they're insisting on something as being correct and they're unyielding. Systematic theology we're a little bit more familiar with because lots of books are called systematic theologies. In essence, dogmatics is systematic theology. Um, so this comes up really clearly in Barvink's academic orations. So uh, you get really clear descriptions of these distinctions. Uh, what I discovered in that translation project is that often you have a much lengthier, wordier, uh, just a fuller description of stuff you will find in reformed dogmatics. And that's what makes the academic oration so valuable. Um, There's simply a lot more information, a lot more content on some of these ideas. And this is one of them. So in the uh, Science of Holy Theology, Babink talks about how system is an integral part of theology. So systematics is dogmatics. The crucial distinction, though, is that dogmatics picks up on the authority of the tradition. Such uh, dogmatics takes the tradition as authoritative in a way that systematic theology does not necessarily take the tradition to be an authority. And um, here we have to remember he's saying this at the end of the 19th century. So one of the big problems at the end of the 19th century was precisely the authority of the tradition in a scholarly theology. Now I think again for contemporary evangelicals that's quite a hard uh, and unfamiliar kind of realm of concepts. Evangelical Protestants will think about Scripture as the final authority and Roman Catholics as upholding tradition as an authority and so Protestants don't think of the tradition as an authority. Unfortunately that's That's what the Anabaptists said. Uh, It's certainly not what the magisterial reformers were interested in. And by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, you have a number of problems coming to a head which involve the authority of the tradition, the key one being the historical Jesus. So while it was evident in the 16th century that you couldn't maintain the doctrines of the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Atonement without the tradition, it became absolutely clear at the end of the 19th century that these were doctrines that could not be sustained apart from the authority of the tradition. So again, that that can be a little bit unfamiliar to evangelical Protestants. One of the fascinating things in the Anabaptist tradition is you have Faustus Socinus, the Socinians, denying the incarnation, denying the Trinity, denying the atonement. And uh, Socinus wrote the book on Sola Scriptura, He's famous for having written a treatise on this final authority of Scripture. <laughs> and that can be very discombobulating <laughs> it's, for evangelicals. Oh, it's right. there. <laughs> so the key defendant of Sola Scriptura was somebody who denied the doctrines of the Trinity, mm. the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Atonement. And uh, that's become a huge problem in the end of the 19th century. So then you have systematic theology effectively operating outside of the authority of the Tradition, um, rejecting the Incarnation, rejecting the Trinity, rejecting the Atonement, objectively understood. Mm. Yet you also have a church dogmatics that wants to retain the doctrines of the Trinity, the doctrines of the Incarnation and Atonement. And uh, in order to do that, they have to acknowledge the authority of the tradition. Mm. So this is where dogmatics really comes into play. And so when Karl Barth talks about a church dogmatics, that is central to what he's saying as well. So in those translations, uh, in the speech, religion and theology, there's this marvellous little description of contemporary proposals for separating systematic theology and dogmatics into different institutions. Mm -hmm. So you might have dogmatics when you're training pastors to do ministry in the church, but in the university you're going to do systematic theology. And Bavink has this marvellous little uh, discussion about Why that's not such a great idea. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. That's a big answer to a question, but it's an incredibly complex question that is actually quite hard, I think, for evangelical Protestants to get their heads around because multiple points of reference in this Mm -hmm. whole discussion are just alien to our way of thinking.
2: Right. It seems like such a fine or overly focused nuance, one of those academic, you know, ivory tower uh, discussions or distinctions. And yet, I mean, it is a question that it seems we've struggled with for quite a while, uh, at least least over 100, 200 years or so, of what is the practicality of theology and doctrine? Mm. Is there a tie between, say, a practical theology and dogmatics or systematics even? How do you link these together? And I suppose in going through the introduction of your dissertation, this uh, interest in looking at the the center of Bobvin's theology uh, in looking at his method and his concern, it, it seems like that's what he's trying to do where he's trying to unite it all, trying to find the organic center of theology itself. but he's trying to see how it all ties together naturally. what is what is its heartbeat, right? What is its very life is applicable in all of its areas, including the ecclesial, area, but the personal area as well. Is that, about, is that accurate to say?
0: Yeah, and um, that, that is actually what's central to Barbing's valuing of dogmatics, so that is, you know, the church, because what do we do at church? We worship the triune God. So this metaphor of heart and lifeblood involves religion. As the metaphor plays out, Christology is the heart, but the lifeblood of dogmatics is, is religion. And again, um, this is very loaded word for the 19th century because what religion is is something that is disputed. Um, but in terms of your question, which is such a good one, is that what barving is doing is saying uh, that practical theology, the Christian life, is the lifeblood of theology. So if the Christian life is somehow left behind, uh, you've got a cadaver on your hands. Mm. In the academic orations we have this marvellous um section where he talks about practical theology as the jewel in the crown. Uh, So when he thinks about theology as a constellation of sub-disciplines, Diving thinks that the theological project is incomplete if it doesn't culminate in practical theology. Mm -hmm. And that claim is very closely connected to this heart and lifeblood idea as well, Um, so that if religion is not the heartbeat which animates every dogma, as he says at one point in those speeches, uh, you've got this kind of dead body that rots. And that's what he sees as happening in uh, the universities of the late 19th century, Mm. that in Protestant liberalism you have a new type of liberal theologian who's working with a cadaver. Uh, And that's really interesting. So you have people like Willy Hauermann in Marburg who are deeply religious people. And um, in Karl Barth's speech, I think for his 70th birthday, it's a really famous little speech he gave. He makes this comment too that in the older liberal theologians, we have this deep reverence and this deep love for the church and that's something that he sees missing in the 20th century when something he was deeply committed to leave behind mm. <laughs> hence church dogmatics
2: now I want to get a little bit of an additional context here. We've been speaking of this term organism, right? Would you be able to describe this organism, uh, this organic concept in Bavinck's theology as well as others, if you might be able to talk a little bit about the idealist background of it, and perhaps uh, if you could include that formal and material principle in, in such a description? Just kind of give an idea of what an organic theology is here.
0: Yeah, so the, the organism is an incredibly important metaphor, if you like, that permeates Barvinck's works. Like you can do word studies in Barvinck and see how many times a word appears, an organism is way up there. He he's certainly an organic kind of person. But it's a very loaded term. And um so I remember reading James's James's monograph, Trinity and Organism, and he really put his finger on a very important structural feature of Barvinck's writing. Uh, the relationship between the doctrine of the Trinity and the concept of the organism. One of the things that I flesh out uh, in The Heart of Dogmatics is that the organism is a very loaded term and has uh, very, very close ties to German idealism. Mm. And the importance of that, uh, it's it's quite demonstrable. It can be traced all the way through Barbing's writings um, as well as in his sources to Schelling and his early um, philosophy of identity, uh, the Naturphilosophie, the natural philosophy. Um, The importance of that is that the organism presupposes a number of formal relations. And when you appreciate that, we start seeing the organism on a whole bunch of pages where the word doesn't necessarily appear. And it becomes uh, incredibly important Mm -hmm. to understanding how Barving's theology works. Uh, because he is, in fact, mapping out these formal relations across uh, individual doctrines and also the relationship between one doctrine and the next. And so that's the practical uh, importance of seeing uh, the background of Schelling in Bavink, is that one of the particularly important ones is the uh, compatibility of teleology and mechanism. That's a key aspect of Schelling's natural philosophy. What does that mean? It means that something can be a machine, and an organism at the same time. Uh, This is part of uh, his philosophy of identity, the unity of the subject and object. It's all pretty complicated, and you have to wade through um, some pretty terse kind of stuff. But what that means for Bavinck is that he can describe things in two different ways. He can describe something mechanically, and he can describe something teleologically. Uh, So mechanism is a word for necessity, for causality. Teleology or organism is a word for final causes and this is something he just rides this horse into the sunset as a means of connecting uh, modern discussions with the reformed tradition and so there's a number of spots just in the heart of dogmatics where i point out that we have the organism kind of uh, under an invisibility cloak as it were, because we have all these formal properties of the organism being described, but the word organic is not being used. Uh, but it's, it's part of understanding what it means for Barthin to talk about theology being an organism. So th- it becomes quite interesting then with the role of Christology because, as I said, with the heart and the lifeblood is itself an organic metaphor. But we find Barthin actually connecting doctrines to this concept of the organism even more closely.
1: So, we're out of time for today's Bobcast. We thank you for listening to part one of this interview with Dr. Bruce Pass, the Director of Postgraduate Studies and Lecturer in Christian Thought and History at the Brisbane School of Theology, author of The Heart of Dogmatics. So, how about you take over and get us to the Totzine stuff?
2: So, Andrew wants me to come in here and uh, handle the Totzine stuff, so... So we're just going to stop here and say the totzines thing. So
1: Tote Totzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological contents. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.